than I thought. Fuck WCW. Move away from this. Fuck you, Kevin Sullivan. You start off piece of dick sucking cunt. Let me spark you up. Your show down 60% in the ratings. And you're dealing with a hundred year old worth of men and Hogan and Dick Flair. And you think that will turn your ratings around? Well, look at the people. Will that turn their ratings around? Hey, Tommy, do you want to see Hogan Flair? Hey, Tommy, do you want to of your dollars and then come right back here to XPW hoist this company on my back like I did ECW and make this fucking company a goddamn player and a sport of professional wrestling The franchise sure let off some steam in that initial XPW promo where he talked about a lot of the things that really pissed him off. Today on Franchised with Shane Douglas, we will discuss XPW at length. And we've got some pretty big announcements coming up. So make sure that you listen to the whole episode. Because right now, you're with us on Franchised with Shane Douglas. You've been in sports entertainment hell, a place devoid of character development, intelligent storylines, and gripping angles. We'll never fear franchisees, because you're about to be <laughs> franchised. Welcome to Franchised with Shane Douglas. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back right here on franchised with Shane Douglas and it's been an amazing week for professional wrestling and I can't wait to find out what the franchise has to say about it franchise what's up man you said a big 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 week in the uh annals of wrestling history or sports entertainment industry or wrestling slash sports entertainment history but lots to talk about 
definitely lots to talk about. The first thing I want to bring up is the very first war between NXT and AEW. You actually got to see some of both shows. Yeah, I did. Uh, not not often, but you know the all the inertia build up to it. You know, it caught my interest. I, I watched substantially more of AEW uh, than I did the NXT. But I think anybody that listens that, that also watched is listening to this will understand that. Well, you're not the only one. There was actually more fans watching AEW than there was watching NXT. Even though both shows, in my opinion, in my humble unfranchised opinion, were, were both great shows. I did think that AEW was not as good as I expected it to be, but it was still really good. And NXT was was actually really, really good, and not enough people really tuned into that. I think that it was like a little over 800,000 fans were watching NXT, and 1.4 million were watching AEW. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. What, cause I, again, I don't follow the stuff that closely, but... What does the NXT typically usually draw? What's their ratings typically? That I'm not sure if you can really judge on because this was the first week that they actually had a full two-hour show on USA. So I don't think that those numbers would really would really mean anything yep. in in this uh, yep. in this conversation. But we, we will see next week. You know, it, I mean, AEW won the first battle. Um, who will win the second battle? I do not know. We'll find out a little bit later this week. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, AEW clearly had a ton of momentum coming out of that and going into it. The conventional wisdom that I had seen, you know, like the, the Meltzers and different people online were saying that they expected NXT to not dominate, but to, to, to easily win it. You know, we see now that that wasn't the case. I, I Look, I, it's my unbridled opinion that there are tens of millions of wrestling fans that for the last decade, decade and a half, have slowly sloughed off the business because they've just gotten sick and tired of sports entertainment and doesn't have to make sense. Uh, you know, I can shoot laser beams out of my eyes. I can hit you in there with a sledgehammer. You can kip right up from that and do 96 backflips and fly around the ring. That's the kind of stuff that wrestling fans abhor because there's been no real alternative. You know, that you saw that sloughing off that I'm talking about occur over a prolonged period, you know, going from you know, the, the 48, 52 million that the three companies used to, to, to get down to 10 million, to 5 million, to, and it hovered around the 4 or 5 million mark for a while, but then slow, each subsequent year for the last 13 or 14 years, the, the, the collective ratings each subsequent year have been lower than the previous year. And now there is a viable alternative uh, from a guy with deep pockets, deeper than Vince's, a substantial outlet on TNT. I think you're going to see wrestling fans slowly, maybe quickly, come back to watch what they see. I, I was very impressed by the inaugural AEW show. I thought Shivani and, and Jim Ross's uh, commentary, Shivani is much better, but you know, it, it gave you a real feel of beckoning back, back to those glory days of wrestling, the Monday Night Wars. I, I think Excalibur missed some real opportunities for color. You know, so there was clearly some kinks had to be worked out. It wasn't by far a perfect show. But the opening match, Cody versus Guevara, I thought it was an outstanding opening match, and it laid out a lot of threads that would come to fruition over the next two hours, exactly as pro wrestling should be done. So, you know, I thought the main event was a great main event, albeit a, a bit cattywampus with the pulling of Omega out of the six-man, you know, by uh, Moxley and stuff. But still, it kept you, it kept your interest. 
it wasn't like, oh, shit, now they've, they've blown it. I think from my perspective of the two shows, and full disclosure, I watched much more of the AEW show again because I think I liked more what I was seeing. What I saw of the NXT show, there were a lot of good surprises. You know, uh, Finn Balor coming back, and you could see the, the clear connection he had to the audience there. But in that opening match, Riddle versus uh, Cole, the non-selling part of it is what, again, drives wrestling fans away. I clobber you with a clothesline, you jump right up and clobber me back with one, and then I jump right back up and clobber you with one. Well, when, when exactly then do they start to hurt? Is it the first one? Is it the ninth one? Is it someplace in between? You know, like I was, t- I was talking to Dominic Danucci about it because he watched back and forth between the two shows, and he said the same thing. He said, I don't fucking get what they're doing. Well, you're never going to because it's sports entertainment. It doesn't, in their head, doesn't have to make sense. Talk about the the announce team real quick. So you like Excalibur or you do not like Excalibur? Well, like I said, first of all, you're the color guy. You're the you're the guy that's as color, the guy that's supposed to give texture to what you're seeing. The play by play guy is supposed to be Jim Ross. He's going to tell you the nuts and bolts of what it is you're seeing. The color guy is supposed to tell you why this is a good mode of attack or why it's not a good mode of attack. Why this particular move hurts or doesn't hurt. At least that was always my approach. I never had that wit and witticism like a Jesse Ventura and certainly not like a Bobby Heenan. Uh, so I approached it more from the analytical point of view uh, as color. When you turn on an NFL game, the color guy is telling you why this was a great play or why it was a dumbass play by the offense or why this was a great defensive scheme or a bad defensive scheme. They're, in other words, they're, they're telling the viewer why what they're seeing is being done and if it's good or bad and why. Excalibur missed a ton of openings with that. It seemed to me from what I was watching, you could see Jim trying to pitch it to him, but how many times did Excalibur step on him with a play-by-play, things like that. But again, it's the first show, you know, so first time I, I worked with Joey Styles, it was very difficult because I didn't know where his sentence structure, like, what, you know, the way he ended his sentences are wrapped up. And we finally came down to a point where he would tap me on the hand when he was wrapping up. So I knew at the end of that next sentence, that was my opening. And after a week or two or three, we, we got chemistry, so I could tell just by the way he was talking, he was getting ready to wrap up. So I didn't step on him. But again, being the first week, I wouldn't have expected a brand new uh, announced team to work seamlessly together. When you bring up the football aspect, I, I've got to think in my head, it's like, what, audio-wise, audio I have no issues with Excalibur. But yeah. if I look at the commentary team of a football game and one of them is wearing a football helmet, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be confused. I, I don't understand why he's wearing a mask. And I guess it has something to do with his, his indie run. I have, no, I have no idea what his indie run is. So to me, he has. Uh, there's no reason for him to be wearing a mask. And I, I just, I just don't get it. I don't understand why well, he's wearing a mask. And it really, it really ruins it for me. Well, I, I don't know either, except that if, if potentially down the road they might want to use him in the ring, if they think that maybe with the mask it does draw some connection to that character. I, I, I can't really speak for that. You know, Likewise, I always found it odd when I was a kid, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of listeners that disagree with me on this, but when I was a kid in the dressing room and, and Mil Maskeris would walk in and have his mask on and get a shower with his mask on and get dressed and leave with his mask on, I always thought, well, like, who are you working? You're back here with the boys, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I can care less. I'm certainly not going to take a picture of you and expose, you know, sell it to a magazine or something someplace. So I always found that strange. Like, I always considered the dressing room like to be like the inner holy of holies, like where we can be us. We work the audience. Where our job is to 
perform in front of the audience and work the crowd, not each other in the dressing room. So I, I can't speak for why he would have done that. I, I, like you, I'm unfamiliar with, a, with with his independent run. Potentially, if they wanted to use him in some way down the road, maybe that's one of the reasons I, I, I couldn't say. All right, so we've got a really good topic to bring up before our actual topic, and it's your favorite topic in the world, Shane. It's the topic of you getting constantly proven right. <laughs> well, everybody, I think we start with the premise that the franchise is always right, correct? I mean, that, that is the rule of the show, but uh, this time you're really right, and we, we have to start with SmackDown. SmackDown was an excellent show. It had The Rock. It had some good matches. It had a great new set. I think the SmackDown set looks better than the new Raw set. There was all kinds of positives on SmackDown, but when we got to the very end, now, I'm looking at my watch, and I'm like, man, they only have like five minutes left. How are they going to do the main event? Well, this is how. Brock Lesnar completely smashes Kofi Kingston in like five minutes. One move, one, oh. two, three, with an F5, and defeats Kofi Kingston for the belt, smashing his entire six-month champion, and and I just did not understand why they would do such a thing and upset the fan. I mean, just give, I understand why you put the belt on Lesnar. Don't get me wrong. You're starting off on Fox. You need somebody big to have a champion. And I haven't been the biggest fan of Kofi Kingston as champion, but all of a sudden you're going to smash him out of nowhere and have the entire arena booing and then the next day on social media, it goes insane of people people actually saying that that, that move was racist. Oh, come on. Yeah, I, I think that's a step too far. But, you know, again, this is from the, the outsider outside view. Um, it did seem to me that Kofi was definitely making a connection to the audience, and that's never a bad thing. I'll, I'll preface with this. Everything I say in comparing product or discussing any of the products, as the backdrop, you have to put out there that AEW had a very successful inaugural launch. You know, so there's a viable second, you know, uh, option out there for the fans. So why you would go in there and destroy a guy that's had your belt and making a connection to the audience like that really makes no sense. And you said, but the, the coming on Fox, okay, so they're going to have two MMA guys, you know, UFC guys fighting, uh, you know, okay, so it gives it more of the sports feel. But isn't this the WWE? Isn't this the sports entertainment company? And don't they beat us over the head with that constantly? So now I think you're causing, you're stirring confusion in the audience. You know, so you go out and you do this, you destroy him, and unless you've got some really cool plan to, to build him back, you know, you're, You've already knocked him down six pegs, you know, below sea level. So to build Kofi back is going to take time and it's going to take effort. Then to put as your, you know, one of your early shows going into Fox as a match of, you know, the guy that can only work for the company here and there a few times a year against another guy that the fans are largely unfamiliar with in, in, in sports entertainment or wrestling circles. Well, that's a, that's an interesting thing too. Is is how Kane has only had one professional wrestling match, and now he's going to take on Brock for the title in Saudi Arabia. You know, he could actually win the WWE Championship on his first match with the company, which I think is kind of ridiculous. I don't care who he is. I, I agree. You know, imagine the rest of your dressing room sitting there that you've failed, and we've talked about this numerous times on pretty much every interview I do. 
about how Vince McMahon and the WWE have largely failed to like what Steve Austin used to call strapping the rat rocket to the rest. They've not gotten any of these young kids over to the degree like they used to, you know, when they used to push a Steve Austin or an Undertaker or a Shawn Michaels or whoever. They've failed to do that. And so now, you know, I guess placing the blame. So imagine if you're one of those kids that's been sitting there for five or six years or seven or eight, waiting your turn patiently, and you see this guy waltz in and get a get a world title shot. It, it's a... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm betting that dressing room's none too pleased right now. Well, you know, that's a really good thing to bring up there is the fact that they don't get these young guys over like they used to. And one of those young guys is definitely Seth Rollins. And as bad as I wish this conversation about what happened with wrestling that was negative was over, it's not. I have to tell you about last night as well. Last night, you got The Fiend, Bray Wyatt, who is ridiculously over. And, I mean, he's over... Uh, he's over with my one-year-old when when the firefly when the firefly funhouse comes on tv my one-year-old is absolutely mesmerized now i don't know if that's necessarily healthy or not but it's true he loves bray wyatt he loves the fiend and he's super young he doesn't even really speak in full sentences yet so you know the the guy's over is my point and yeah Last night, he's in the ring with the Hell in a Cell, you know, and going back to the Cain Velasquez thing, it's it's they want to rush everything. Anything they think might be a good idea, they're like, let's rush it. Let's rush it and ruin it. And that's what they're doing with Bray Wyatt as well. And and then, you know, of course, Cain Velasquez as well. You're rushing him into a match that he's not even ready for in Saudi Arabia, which I guess matches in Saudi Arabia don't really matter because it's all about getting money out of the prince. But seems like you would do something better than put a guy who's only had one wrestling match in a main event type of match like that. But on to Bray Wyatt. Bray Wyatt's in the ring. The Fiend is in the ring. He gets covered with a ladder. And then on top of that ladder, Seth stacks a chair for basically no reason. Because, you know, if there's a ladder on your face, putting a chair on top of that ladder is not going to change the effect at all. And he goes out, he gets a sledgehammer, and he comes into the ring. The referee, now we're in a hell in a cell match. The same match that Mick Foley flew off the top of and went (laughs) through a table, and they didn't stop the match. He went through the top of the cell, and his tooth came out his nose, and they did not stop the match. But last night, the ref begs with Seth not to hit him with the sledgehammer, he hits him. He hits the la- the chair that's on top of the ladder that's on top of the fiend with this sledgehammer, and the referee calls for the bell and does referee stoppage in a hell in a cell match. The place was livid, man. I'm talking about booze, AEW chance, chance for refunds. I seen a guy busting his replica title in front of the building this morning. I mean. It, People are furious over this. And I don't think it's necessarily that they wanted The Fiend to win. They just wanted an actual finish. And we did not get it. I was, you know, I thought it was a horrible idea from the jump. First of all, The Fiend doesn't need the belt. Second of all, you don't need to, to put The Fiend in a world title match right now. 
of a universal title, which, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's the main belt for the show. And you're going to put him in there right now when we, all he's done is beat Finn Balor. You know, if you really want to you know, look at his whole career there as the fiend, all he's done is beat Finn Balor and Finn Balor definitely wasn't the number one contender. So rushing him into that match was a mistake out the gate, but then to do it like this. Oh my God. Well, you know, you hit all the courts, right? You know, that, how long ago was it that, that the fiend was was premiere? Yeah, you know, we've Month, been two. Yeah, three months tops. So you know, you, you only having a match or two, and you getting him over with some promos and videos. And let's face it, the fans know it's Bray Wyatt, and they love Bray Wyatt going in. And you rush it to that, like you said, I would argue you're correct. You know that to put a guy like that, I'll say as a gimmick, but which you know, not implying like not lesser than worker. I'm just saying, like you know. Clearly, it's Bray Wyatt in the gimmick. To put him in a, in a title match is pretty much irrelevant because I would think a fiend-like character wouldn't give a shit about a belt. Right, uh, right. You know, so why put him in that? Uh, and then the dichotomy of styles. You know, you, like Seth is more of a you know flying guy, moving around type of guy, working with a guy that's not necessarily that style. So on paper, when you see two styles like that that don't really mesh up, uh, the example I always give when I talk about this kind of stuff is like me and, and, and Ricky Steiner. I've been friends, God, since my earliest days in the business. I love his character. He, God, he can do so much. But Rick Steiner and I, I couldn't buy a good match with Rick. And it wasn't like he wasn't trying or I wasn't trying. It just, just um, our styles didn't mesh properly. You know, so I see that with the Seth Rollins thing. But then, to, like you, you know, again, you're hitting the nail on the head because to then do a hell in a cell match with all that history, you know, we, we, the Mick Foley stuff is, is is legend. But you know, there were also some pretty damn good matches with Shawn Michaels and so many other people in that hell in a cell match that they've seen sledgehammers and people thrown off the top of the cage and fall through the cage and you know all these you know really and match never stopped and and again let's face it in sports entertainment what the hell do they even have guys and strikes for because it, none of it's relevant it's all just do whatever you want to do and then in a main event on a pay-per-view you stop the match with a referee stoppage wow you know, I could have told you if if we had a time machine or a little window into the future yesterday before that took place, I could have told you how the fans were going to react, which would have sounded exactly as how they reacted. They were furious. I, I've never seen the fans have go away heat that was so strong as they did. And it wasn't go away heat for a wrestler. It was go away right. heat for the company. And I've never seen yeah. that before, ever. Well, it's rare when you do see it. When you do see it, it's a kiss of death. You don't want to see it. It's not something that's good for the promotion, obviously. Uh, but, it, you know, I, I keep going back to this. and I, it, you know, Every time I say stuff like this, like, it keeps beckoning in my head these same words that I've said a million times. You know, we've often heard the phrase, you know, Vince McMahon is a genius. You know, I would disagree with that, but I would certainly never say that Vince McMahon is stupid. And then you see something like that, that on paper, Anybody with any kind of acumen to this business would look at that and say, oh, my God, that's the shits. Sort of like Shawn Michaels handing over the belt when he got a little bump on the head. You know, it's really, really bad, stupid stuff, and the fans see right through it. The big difference right now and why it makes it exponentially more stupid is because there is a viable company that started up, an alternative, 
that the fans can easily find and turn tune over to if they want to. And you're pushing them towards that. You know, it'd be one thing if, if it was 1.4 million to one, three or one, three, five in a neck and neck, or, you know, it was a real close toss up. That was an ass kicking. And for a company that's been in business for quite some time and on national television for quite some time for the new guy, the new promotion to come out and so resoundingly defeat. I think what you're seeing there is a lot of pent up anger in the fans that's now going to start coming out because they have that alternative. I would agree 100%, but I will say this. SmackDown did get a rating of 3.9 million viewers. That was pretty pretty good for SmackDown there. Yeah, obviously. I mean, they, you know, right now, see, the old phrase, a rising tide rises all ships. So with the AEW you know, pulling in a, you know, a pretty considerable fan base for their inaugural show, that rose the tide. And that obviously, I think, had some impact on SmackDown. Some of those fans that may not have watched for a while tuned in because there's a new promotion out there to keep an eye on. And they've, you know, let's face it, AEW's done a pretty good job of getting the word out and getting fan excitement built up. So I, I think that's part of what you're seeing with that. Now, let's, it's going to be really curious to watch those ratings this week, both for Raw, well, for all three, Raw, NXT, and SmackDown, as to what does that pay-per-view do to the to the tide is that going to shove it back down are we going to see the ebb and flow of that tide because of such a ridiculously bad outcome on a pay-per-view pay-per-views to me used to mean like giving the fans a blow-off giving the fans something special not hey let's use a pay-per-view to really piss the fans off and see where that takes us but i'll, I'll say this as a final caveat controversy sells i don't care what it's in and, you know, by doing that and, and having the people so pissed off, you know, might there be a method to his madness? I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give Vince every benefit of the doubt, but, you know, I, I think we're, <laughs> I think I'm being a little bit too kind. Well, they have announced that they're going to do Seth Rollins versus The Fiend at Survivor Series this year. So I guess we're, we're building up to that match now, which I, I really hope can be better. Then, uh, which I still consider a rush job. With, I mean, the fiend shouldn't even be in that storyline, but you know, whatever. We'll see what happens. Yeah, doesn't need to be in that storyline, and, and, and you know, so now you've got them got them into a place. Uh, like I'm, I'm just envisioning. I didn't see it, but you know, just going off what you're telling me, if somebody laying there, uh, like I, every time a kid, I just this last Saturday night, I had a couple kids talking to me and asking me about you know different philosophies and things, and and I said, you know, make it make sense. So the first question I would have is, how does it make sense that you have this theme that's supposed to be, you know, all that that character entails? Laying there for, how long did it take for that spot to set up? Was it 15 seconds, or was it a minute and a half, three minutes? Because why would a character like that lay there that long while you're just stacking this stuff up on top of them? Because my guess would be, it's probably not going to be, like, he's doing it, like, to give you a back rub. Or, or something beneficial for you. If he's laying all this stuff on top of you, there's probably a reason. So for any character, especially a fiend-like character, to lay there that long, just it, it sucks all the wind out of it. It, it, it. it just looks like phony, fake wrestling, sports entertainment crap. You know, something else, just real quick before we you know stop talking about this, that I, I really disliked about the match, is the entire match was done in red lighting. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that makes sense, right? Especially like when you're used to 
when you watch one of my big complaints about WWE is, you know, they, they light the entire arena up like the surface of the sun, right? You know, so you see every nook and cranny and everything. And I, I guess that's okay to some people. I, I, I remember growing up watching wrestling when, you know, the lights were over the ring and it made the guys in the ring look like gladiators. You know, I, I, I prefer that look, which is probably why I like the AEW look. Although I'll say that I thought they had the audience a little bit too dark. But, you know, so now, you know, you have it lit up like the sun typically on a WWE. WWE product, and you come to this match on this pay-per-view, and the whole thing is red, which is difficult to, to see. You know, if there's right. nothing to make contrast, it's difficult to pull the guys in the ring out from the audience or from the cage. It just sort of blends everything together. Especially when the cage is red, because the cage is red now, too. So the cage is red, oh, the geez. lights are red. <laughs> It's very red, but I didn't like that. Uh, some people may have. I I'm not sure, but we need to talk about what we've got on schedule today. And before we talk about that, I want to mention that last week's episode about the WCW 92-93 run was exceptional. People absolutely loved it. We got a bunch of downloads, and I, I'm I'm extremely excited about the uh, the feedback that we got, which was which was very positive. Great. Look, the one thing is. The people that know me, whether they love me, they hate me, or loathe me, it'd be hard-pressed to find a fan out there that says that, you know, Shane Douglas spews a bunch of bullshit or whatever. I'm not saying I'm always right, although I believe I am. Anything I say, I stand behind. Anything I say, especially in analyzing anything in-ring related, is based off of my 40 years in the business, not, you know, my opinion of not liking sports entertainment or loving wrestling. Uh, it's based on what I'm watching and what I'm seeing. Good is good, great is great, and bad is bad. So hopefully that's what we're getting, you know, getting some traction with the fans with. Well, they're definitely loving it, and they definitely loved last week's episode. If you haven't checked out last week's episode, please go into the archives and check out WCW 92-93. was an excellent episode that you will enjoy. Now it's time for episode seven, and that is the episode we are in now. And our topic is XPW, Extreme Pro Wrestling. Yes, sir. I, I remember the place. I was I, I thought somebody had to actually, you know, like as we said before we started recording, as I told you, uh, you know, I for me, you know, I've had such a thankfully long career. Stuff sort of starts to melt together, especially when you get like close in time frames. You know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, but as I was researching for this episode, I came across some things that I had completely forgotten. Once I read it, like, you know, it's, it's, they're all there in some recess of my brain someplace. Uh, but researching it brought back a lot of the uh, things that I had, had since long since forgotten about. Uh, so I'm just going to see where it goes today. All right. Well, we are talking about Extreme Pro Wrestling. They were uh, a promotion in Los Angeles owned by Rob Zakari. Zakari appeared on shows as the on-camera owner under the name Rob Black alongside his wife, Lizzie Borden. The promotion focused on hardcore wrestling, and under Zakari, it had connections to the Los Angeles porn industry as real-life owner of Extreme Associates. Now, uh, Lizzie Borden, she was a she was a porn star, correct? I wouldn't so so much go that far. My again, this is based on my memory. She had been in the industry and then came over, like when she and Rob got married, came over and. You know, so she she had history there. All right, the founders were Rob Zakari and Tom Byron. And uh, we know all kinds of things about Rob, but Tom Byron, not so much. Did you ever meet Tom Byron? Probably did. Uh, I, I saw that as well. And, you know, didn't the name didn't ring a bell. 
uh, again, you have to understand when I'm walking into a place like that, I'm, you know, meeting a bunch of new faces on any particular night. It, 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 it stuck out to me in my memory. That was one of the things that jumped out at me because uh, in my memory, I had it as Rob Black being the owner. I didn't realize there were co-owners. I'm not sure if he was necessarily a co-owner. He was just one of the founding members, and he may have been gone by the time that you got there. Now, you you spent a little bit of time there before you came in 2002, and that was right at the time when the Radicals went to the WWE, correct? Yes. Now, you didn't do much there at that time because you ended up going back to WCW shortly thereafter. Yes. It wasn't long. I can't give you a time frame, but you know, matter of months, maybe a month, month and a half. When I was laid off from WCW, when the Radicals left, there was, you know, that the window there where I was not doing anything and had to make, still make a living and was going out there at that point and then was called back to WCW when Vince Russo was called back. All right. So in 2002, WCW's closed and you show up at XBW and Basically, they declare it the all-new XPW when they relocate it to Pennsylvania. Was that basically because of you? Like, they signed you, and they were like, hey, well, we might as well move to Pennsylvania since we got the franchise now. Well, they, the move to Pennsylvania, I don't think it was so much like the company was moved to Pennsylvania. I think that, you know, at least in my recollection, I, I think that part of it sort of gets lost because they were still, you know, based in Los Angeles. The office was still in Los Angeles. And we did run some shows out in Los Angeles, but the primary part of that run, because we were going to be bringing in so many of the the ECW talents, was to be stepping into ECW arena and and the era in the area where ECW now out of business, you know, would have a fan base. So April 2002 is when you sign on with Rob Black's Extreme Pro Wrestling. When you sign up, you know, what's that sign up like? Like, how did you meet Rob? What, what were involved in the negotiations and all that good stuff? Well, I, I had met Rob at e, an ECW event in New Orleans. It was the show where Chris uh, Candido hurt his neck, I believe, and I, I was off with the elbow. So uh, I, I walked into the hotel lobby, and, and Bubba had been, uh, Ray Dudley had been good friends with him, and he would, you know, typically hang out with Bubba and Devon and those guys, Big Dick and everybody. Met him and was always friendly towards me. I only saw him a handful of times. It wasn't like, you know, there was a lot of history there. Um, and then when I went out, uh, that that first show that I, I, I appeared on, I can't remember the name of the building. But it was a theater right, like, on the same block uh, as the uh, Columbia Records, uh, the round Columbia Records building that everybody's familiar with out in Los Angeles. So... You know, I went out and met with him. He asked if I was interested in working there and, you know, potentially booking down the road. And at that stage of my career, I was looking for, you know, the next uh, the next phase. You know, what was going to be next? And it, 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 it was clear that with WCW gone and ECW gone, I didn't have a, a urge or desire to go back to WWF. And so that made the most sense at the time. Now, this is not an exclusive deal because you're currently working at this time with uh, several different promotions. Yes. Well, it, it, you know, it was the same thing with XPW as, as the early days of the ECW. You know, they were running, you know, but a couple shows a month. And, you know, I didn't want to, you know, sign an exclusive deal. And, and they couldn't afford to sign me to an exclusive deal to forego working with all the other, uh, you know, there were a lot of other indie promotions that at that point, with the television exposure I had, I was still making pretty darn good money with. Well, I noticed you're working with NHB, you're working with uh, BCW, MCW, JPW, QWA, 
all at the same time. You're also working at MLW. Is this the same MLW we see now? Uh, I, I believe the same owner, um, uh, Court, Court Bauer, I believe. He had the idea for the, the, the initial Break the Barrier show, which was ironically the last day I worked with ECW. It was in the ECW arena. That's why it was called the Break the Barrier show, because ECW had a pretty much lock on that building. And uh, that weekend, ECW was doing a pay-per-view in Poughkeepsie where Rob Van Dam was wrestling Jerry Lim in one of their epic classics. I was advertised on that show. And I took the booking uh, at, at the ECW arena. And that day at the show, I got, runs Dragon Gate, uh, Gabe Sapolsky came up to me and he said, I, I got a message for you from Paul. These are Paul's words, not mine. He said, if you know it's good for you, you'll get your ass to Poughkeepsie. You know, get, like that tone of a message. So I didn't get pissed. You know, I, I, you know, I certainly wasn't afraid of Paul's bark. So I went to uh, Bob Ryder, who was also at that show who also did travel for ECW at that time, and I asked him if Paul had booked me a flight. And he said no. And one of the things that Gabe had told me when he uh, told me that I better get my ass to the building if I knew it was good for me was that my friend that you know started off as my driver, Damian Farron, uh, who was ta- tra- transporting me around at that point, uh, said that he was forbidden from being at the show. Damien had been head of merchandising at ECW. Well, that pretty much precluded, you know, to, the one thing that was pretty easy for Paul to know was talking to me that way was a pretty sure way to get me to tell him to fuck off. <laughs> and pretty much what I did. So when I found out there was no plane ticket, uh, I certainly wasn't going to walk from Philadelphia or ride a bicycle from Philadelphia uh, or put my credit card down to rent a car for ECW with all the money that I was owed from there. So that pretty much precluded me making that show in Poughkeepsie, and I did not appear at that show. Well, now, as soon as you get to XBW, they pretty much immediately put the belt on you. Yes, I mean, which, which made sense, right? I, got, I had all that you know impetus from ECW and, you know, the, the, the exposure from WCW, and, you know, they were still a, a group of largely unknown kids at that point, so it made sense to do that. So was that a part of the initial negotiations that tell you, hey, we're going to put the belt on you right out the gate? No, no. I, you know, for that kind of stuff, I don't really negotiate that kind of stuff because, you know, I, I've always been sure of my abilities in the ring and, and, and even more sure of my work ethic. So I, I would never, I never with WWF, never with WCW, never with ECW, uh, or any company before that said, Hey, you know, I'll come there as long as I get a belt or whatever. Uh, you know, that those were always internal decisions made by the promotions I was working for. And, and the same for XPW. Now at this time, you're the XPW heavyweight champion. You're also the MLW heavyweight champion. XPW seems to be the, uh, the main focus for you at this point, right? Yes. Now, when you when you get started with XPW, are you pretty excited? Do you think this is the next ECW? I, I certainly saw potential in it, which is the reason I signed. They had a dressing room that was very similar in feel to ECW in this sense. Everybody worked hard. Nobody half-assed it out there. Um, and there was a camaraderie in the dressing room, at least at that early stage I saw it, felt very similar to ECW it, it, and whether they were trying to mimic it or what, or, you know, just basing off what they were hearing us talk about. Uh, but I felt it, it, wa- walking from an ECW dressing room into an XPW dressing room didn't feel like you were going from earth to Mars. It felt very similar. Now, how long did it take you to actually get the book 
at XBW when you get, first got started? Like, was that a part of the the beginning, or or did you, did you slowly get the book after you had been there for a while? Uh, it wasn't a while. You know, it was. I think one of the, all part and parcel the same thing. Like you know, the suddenly running in, in uh, Philadelphia towns, largely in part because Cody Michaels who would later be involved with Wrestling Society X on MTV uh, and had always co-promoted with me, co-promoted the 97 ECW pay-per-view in Pittsburgh. Uh, in fact, all the Pittsburgh ECW shows and uh, uh, Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio shows. So we already had a lot of contacts and Cody was typically, Cody Michaels was typically the contact person uh, when we co-promoted in the buildings that we would co-promote in. So, but if when we were doing ECW and we'd run Cleveland or Buffalo, well, Buffalo was Bubba's, Johnstown, Wheeling, Pittsburgh, and in any place in those areas, Cody would typically be the the point man that would make the connection to the to the venue. So by bringing us in, it made perfect sense for them to then start running the Pennsylvania towns, and the, and the booking idea took shape pretty quickly. All right, now in 2000 at the Heat Wave pay-per-view, you were still in WCW at this point, but Rob Black purchased six front row tickets to the Heat Wave show and uh, kind of made some noise there. Were Did you know anything about that? Did you hear about it while you were in WCW? Did you talk about it with Rob after you went to XBW or anything like that? No, I had heard about it. If it wasn't immediately, it, it, was, it wasn't long after. You know, that was the kind of thing that in the dressing room people were talking about. It looked from the outside like an overt attempt to try to capitalize on the name. And ironically, a very ECW-style thing, right? I mean, you know, if, if WWF was going to be running Philadelphia, you know, we, we made noise. You know, because we were, that was Philadelphia's our town. You know, so I saw some, you know, some similarities uh, to it. Albeit, I understand when, I, when I'm making these comparisons, I, I'm not putting XPW on the ECW level at that point. I mean, we, you know, you, there was still a clear delineation. As, but, you know, ECW at that point had, you know, six, seven, eight years into its run with a quite prodigious roster of talent that had been through there over the time. But I, I definitely saw the the, the cross-references in, in, in the feel of, you know, crashing an ECW show. My first thought was, when I first heard it was, <laughs> how many people got beat up? Because, you know, I knew my ECW brothers ancestors that yeah you know, they were you know that, that kind of stuff didn't typically get over with an ecw dressing room but it, you could definitely see and at that point you know it was clear that ecw was on its decline right they, you know most of the big names had left and you know there was like a, a regurgitation of storylines that kind of thing so it, it sort of felt at least from my perspective that somebody was ballsy enough to try to come out there and steal the thunder and i guess that person was rob zakari yeah you know, and, and, you know, Rob was, he was, and it's been, God, about since that time that I've even spoken to him. But, you know, you, you could tell that he had a great affinity for Paul Heyman uh, and ECW. You know, likened himself to Paul in several ways, which I used to always laugh at and say, you know, Paul Heyman. You know, just because he wasn't. A, a lot of professional wrestling is balls. You know, you have the balls to go out there and stand in a, in a building of ten or 20,000 people and say this or do that. Some do, some don't. You know, it, it, at least on the overt level, it seemed like it wasn't like, hey, a fuck ECW, we're here now. Uh, what I was hearing Rob saying is I want to be like ECW, you know, and, and the guys, and the, the talent in the dressing room seemed to have that same respect. So it wasn't 
at least from my perusal, it wasn't, uh, you know, hey, you know, that, fuck that old company, it's time for us. It was nothing like that. It was, there was very much an homage being played out in the dressing room. So at XPW's three-year anniversary show, Night of Champions, in July 2002, you make your return to XPW as the mystery opponent of Johnny Webb, winning the XPW yep. title. Following the match, the revelation that Douglas and Lizzie Borden were allies emerged, which would crush Rob Black to the point that Borden inherited the power of XPW. The organization then based its operations in East Coast Philadelphia, and uh, the event also saw the third King of the Deathmatch tournament, uh, which got released on the home video Baptized in Blood. Could you tell us something about Johnny Webb? I know nothing about Johnny Webb. Yeah, he he was... uh really unique character worked his ass off there took some hellacious bumps what was um, the character it, it, it was uh sort of like the the homeless guy uh you know like you know always had a garbage can of, or a gar- a, 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 a shopping cart full of stuff and you know it just was uh, a hard worker you know wasn't you know was never gonna get it he's not no chris benoit you know but was i would say as far as character more in the vein of a mick foley than than a Chris Benoit or Dean Malenko, you know, tending further to that side of the equation. But he worked hard and he listened. He was eager to go out and entertain the crowd. All right, so you had a few matches. You know, this is not a huge run for you uh, compared to other runs you've had. Uh, You defeated... Chris Candido at one time to retain the XBW title. This was October 5th, 2002. Was it pretty incredible to get to wrestle your best friend like that for, for a title, you know, of a brand new oh, company? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, there, it was, it was sort of like bittersweet to me because I saw still a lot of value in, in what we had built with the triple threat. And I thought that it was a bit misguided to go that direction. Yeah, you're going to get a good match out of it, obviously. You know, know, Candido could have a good match with a mop. But, you know, I I thought that it was a little too quick to that. We could have built to that and really ran a storyline towards that, hey, who was more important than the triple threat, who who was the real king of triple threat, that kind of thing. But Rob wanted it to be a, that match. But I think in part because he needed something on on it to give it that. And I'm not in any way putting this on the same level, but something in the vein of, if you remember the early years of ECW, when Psychosis, Rey Mysterio, Benoit Malenko, when those guys were coming in and really putting a stamp on ECW, that Rob wanted to put a, a stamp on XPW that, okay, you know, this blood and guts company that we've been up to this point is now going to be different and we're going to give you matches like this. You know, I think that was more of the reason behind it. I, I still think that, you know, we could have gotten a lot more out of the what I previously said. You know, when you get a chance to work with a guy like Chris Candido, everybody knows my, my, my respect for Chris and my love of Chris, but he was an outstanding in-ring performer. Safe, never dangerous, worked his ass off, and worked his ass off to get his opponent over. So to get to work with a guy like that, you know, complete with the whole, you know, you've got Tammy there, you know, when she was fired on all all cylinders, you know, it it was uh, really a dream matchup, you know, know, something I never thought I'd get a chance to do. And it lived up to every bit of that to me. You know, that, that, you know, getting to work with him was everything I thought it would be. You know, we had teased that a little bit at the end of ECW, like when Taz beat me for the title, there was that little bit of animosity between Chris and me and Tammy and Francine. You know, now we were finally getting to do it. It was a shitload of fun. All right, I'm going to use this time to take a quick break to remind you of our sponsor, the official attorney of Franchise with Shane Douglas, the one and only best lawyer in the world, Stephen P. New. 
Since 2001, drug companies dumped a billion opioid pills in West Virginia, causing over 3,000 overdose deaths and thousands of babies born addicted by no fault of their own. I'm attorney Stephen New. If you're the grandparent or guardian of a child born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, call me. I'll help you seek just compensation. Call the law offices of Stephen P. New at 1-844-BAD-PILLS before time runs out. Hello, Rich Quick here with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. The year was 2002, an extreme pro-wrestling XPW along with their heavyweight champion Shane Douglas relocated their base of operations from the sunny west coast to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, no, I get it. See, ECW was gone. And those fans needed their fix, baby. Well, XPW has the cure for what else yet, you know? They have everything. They have profanity. They have violence. They have porn stars. Yes, they do. They literally check every box. So, why did it fail? Well, we, we may never know. <laughs> okay, it was probably the indictments. But I digress. Uh, a wise man once said, nostalgia is a hell of a drug. But the new anything never works. Oh, don't believe me? Ask, you know, the new Rockers or the new Midnight Express or new Coke. Okay, that was a dated reference. I apologize. I'm an old man. Humor me. All right, point me. XPW was clearly the new ECW. I mean, Extreme is in their name for Christ's sake. So, I guess the lesson is, stop trying to make Fetch happen. It's not going to happen, okay? See, we love ECW. We, we, we miss ECW. ECW somewhat molded who we are as adults. Yeah, think about that for a second. Scary, right? Now, see, ECW spoke to us. But we have to accept when things are over. It's sad, but it's okay. As Dr. Seuss once said, don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. <laughs> yeah, write that down. Until next week, this has been a quick moment in Shane Douglas history. All right, your biggest feud in XPW had to have been with uh, Vic Grimes because that's uh, that's where most of your title defenses were. Uh, you know, you you beat Chris Candido and uh, and Vic Grimes on November sixteenth to retain the title. You defeated Vic Grimes on December twenty first to uh, retain the XPW title. Vic Grimes and Lucy actually defeated you and Lizzie Borden uh, January seventeenth and January eighteenth. You also defeated Vic Grimes to retain the XPW title. That's a, a pretty big feud considering the small run that we have here. What uh, What's your opinion on Vic Grimes? I, I liked him a lot. You know, a big guy, not big in the sense of like height, just a, just a big guy, and could move around really, really well for a guy that size, and would always put himself in positions to take hellacious bumps. You know, there's a there's a part of that, you know, where you start to, like, blur the line between safe and not safe. And Vic did that really well. I, I think sometimes, you know, detrimentally to himself. And I'm never an advocate of that. But if, if he wasn't wrestling me doing it, he'd be doing it with whoever else in the trust room would be working with him. Uh, there was one time in Philadelphia where he took a bump 
off the scaffold, and I honest to God thought he was dead. He came down, and his body hit the top turnbuckle, and it was very reminiscent of mixed bump off the cage. You're talking about you're like talking it. about XPW freefall when he would come off the scaffold with New Jack. Yes, man, and I'm it, glad that you brought it, that up because I was going to bring that up, and I I think. I think it's crazy that these Vic Grimes matches happened after that because yeah. I can't believe that he still walked after that. It, I mean, it was oh. unbelievable. You and me both. When he Anybody that hasn't seen what we're talking about, go back and watch this. When he hits that top turnbuckle, his legs from the hips down go one direction and from the waist up go the other direction, and it literally looks like he's ripped in half. It was an ungodly bump. You said and, it was reminiscent uh, to Mick Foley. I, I would say that it, that it would maybe even be closer to reminiscent of Owen Hart. It was a terrible fall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, God forbid. Uh, yeah, but that was the kind of stuff that Vic would do. You know, and and well, you know, because- I mean, we all know Vic Grimes didn't want to do that spot. I mean, it, I, I mean, I don't know how much you know about New Jack and Vic Grimes, but I did a. I did a oh, yeah. Q&A with, with New Jack, and he told me in that Q&A in front of everyone that his only reason for going to XPW was to kill Vic Grimes. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> well, he damn near succeeded that night then. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, was- he said it straight up, and, he, and when he tells the story, he tells the story about pulling out a taser that no one knew he even had to make sure that he could get exactly done what he wanted to do. And I mean, it, it was unbelievable to hear him go into detail about this, this hatred he has for Vic Grimes, because I don't, I don't know if you know what set that up or not, but uh, it's when new Jack did the fall and, and brain fluid came out of his nose in ECW. Did, did you know anything about that? No, I didn't. Uh, well, yeah, just I, I knew there was heat. I didn't know what precipitated it. Well, just to set it up, uh, New Jack and Vic Grimes are are on a scaffold in ECW. New Jack, you know, getting ready to toss them both off, and Vic doesn't want to jump. And New Jack is like, "Okay, well, we're going to go on three, one, and then he jerked him. And when he jerked him, Vic jerked back, and they both end up going off. And New Jack's head gets caught between the concrete and Vic's ass. Oh, oh, Jesus. Cracks his head open, brain fluids coming out of his nose. New Jack was on the shelf for like nine months. Nobody went and seen him. It just basically like a madman sitting there just thinking about what he's going to do about this. And Vic Grimes never called him, never called him, never tried to reach out to see if he was okay or anything like that. And that's when New Jack said, you know, I knew when I came back to wrestling, I was going to go wherever he was and I was going (laughs) to get him back. And he did. Well, that sounds like New Jack, right? I mean, that doesn't sound surprising in any way. I, I didn't know any of that. Um, you know, I wasn't there at that time, obviously, right? I mean, because I don't remember that. Right. You weren't in ECW at that time, and you were not in XPW when the when the scaffold free fall happened. Okay, because, I, yeah, that's, like, I, I'm sure that would be something that, like I said, would be somewhere in the recesses of my brain, and I have no recollection. That's the first time I've ever heard that story. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. At the end of the show, we're going to talk about uh, how – Everyone is going to get to hear that story. Everybody who listens to the franchise will get to hear that story. I'll give you more information about that at the end of the show. But now back to what we were talking about. I had a fan that wanted to ask a question, and it was a pretty decent, pretty decent series of questions here. So I'm going to talk about that for a second. XPW and CZW. 
uh, Combat Zone mm-hmm. Wrestling. They started in the same year in 1999. IWA yep. Mid-South was two years before. If I'm not mistaken, what the early footage that I've seen of both, IWA and CZW, they were not u- using light tubes when they started. Was XPW the first company to ever bring light tubes into pro wrestling? Oh, golly. Uh, I don't think so. And the reason I say that is, uh, you know, again, this is completely off the, off the cuff, but the, the earliest I remember seeing light tubes was on one of the uh, Insane Clown Posse shows. Juggalo Championship Wrestling? Yes. Uh, I want to say in Columbus, Ohio. And that was the earliest that I remembered seeing them. But, you know, it's again, at this time of the, you know, look at the business at this point, you know, so ECW had this prodigious run, altered the course of wrestling for seven, eight years. WCW had had a pretty prodigious run beating WWE F then 83 weeks. But by this time, ECW is gone. WCW's foundering on its legs and close to being gone, you know, and WWE has found its legs and solidified its base, you know, so you, you could see how like a smaller promotion might say, well, look what ECW did. We'll try that route and maybe outdo ECW, out ECW, ECW. And, you know, for, for me, just looking at that era of wrestling, I've talked about before, you know, we're very proud of what we accomplished in ECW, but I think that uh, there's also some, you, know, you can't say all good and, and sanitize the bad. The bad from ECW is that we got to, a, we raised the bar so much and, and pushed the envelope with, with risk A and, and with risk in general, that you started seeing kids coming into the business trying to one-up it. You know, most of the guys that have been in ECW with the exception of the new Jacks and, and guys that were just fucking insane. Uh, you know, that <laughs> most of us had had a, you know, a pretty strong background in wrestling. And so what we were doing, we had some modicum of, of control over, but towards the end of ECW, it started losing that. And, and everybody became more about jumping a little bit higher, hitting a little bit harder, you know, falling a little bit further. And, you know, laws of physics dictate that, at some point, you're going to break over through where it's safe into the unsafe zone. And when you break into that unsafe zone, if you do a move 10 times, you're guaranteed to get hurt in one of those 10 times. Uh, maybe it's the third time. It might be the sixth time. And then the next person that tries to one up it is going to get hurt one in five times. And the next person, one in three or two. You know, So you're ramping up the, the danger, You know, which, yeah, the fans are going to respond to. But like I've always said, I can go out and literally cut somebody's head off or pull a gun out and shoot them in the head. I'm sure that would get a reaction from the crowd, but it's also going to send me to prison. And so there's a there's a finite point of how far you can push the envelope. Well, it'd send you to prison, of course, unless you were new, Jack. And then you could get away with all of it. <laughs> yeah, and just say it was all a wrestling angle gone bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. So is that why you took the death match? Uh, style stuff out of there when you got the book. I mean, we we seen it go a lot more towards storyline based and and the the sport of professional wrestling that you talk about a lot. Is that why you took Deathmatch out of there? Because I noticed the Deathmatch stuff slowly came out as as you took more control over XBW. Well, it wasn't a conscious thing, and I can't remember if it, if that was something I did or something that Rob 
had 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 decided and going a different direction. But for me, the the death matches that I was seeing in XPW looked sloppy, if that makes sense. They, they you know they, they didn't really have a culminating point. It was just let's go out and hit each other with a lot of stuff, fall from the highest point in the building we can find, and get as much color as we can get. It, 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 there really was no rhyme or reason to it. It was just like 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 I talk about the kids today was just spot monkey stuff it was just violent spots for violence sake there was no real meaning to it i you know coming from the background that i came from uh, i i knew the value of telling a good story and executing it well on television and the longevity that, that would bring to the wrestlers you know it, it, the last thing i wanted on my watch is booker was anybody to get crippled or maimed out there you know or even hurt you know the, the injuries are going to come but you want to try to minimize that as much as possible so that was the reason that when I took the book over, it took it in that direction. And the one thing that I did pretty much state clearly, you know, I don't want to say edict, but it was one of the agreements that Rob and I had was that we had to make a clear separation from Extreme Associates, the porn company, and XPW. It couldn't be XPW, the porn company, porn wrestling company, or the wrestling company associated with porn, because that would be, I knew in trying to go after the fan base that we were going after, that that would be the real low-hanging fruit for them to, to to criticize, you know, and so you know that would lead bear its head in many ways in, in matches that would come later, like with Funk, things that would happen there, uh, because we, you know, it, I was very much concerned that keeping those two closely associated, you know, would make it too easy to criticize, uh, you know, and the rest of the ECW fans, as we know, are are an insanely rabid fan base extremely, no pun intended, loyal to ECW. So if we are going to state that we're going after that fan base, some of those fans are going to say, oh, fuck you. Even if we were better at something, which I'm not saying we were, but even if we would have been, those fans would say, yeah, but it's still not like ECW. It's a lose-lose proposition. So the one thing I didn't want was to give them the easy option to say, oh, you mean the porn company? You know, which would be something that wrestling fans could easily state. And Rob did while I was there keep that separation for much of that time. And I think that was towards the end, what started phasing, you know, some of my trust in Rob out that I, he was starting to blur those lines back together. So speaking of that Terry Funk match, that was probably the best match you had in all of XPW. And you know, it's really a miracle that both of you didn't get severely injured with that beer bottle. Terry nearly hit one of his wrists with it. Um, how, how was that match for you? Oh, it was a nightmare. I, that earlier that day, when I, when I'm running a show, promoting or booking, I like to take some time the day of the show just to like veg out, you know, like just to get my brain decompressed. I had a sort of a ritual that I would go through, go tan, you know, and you know, get something good to eat and shower and get down to the building. While I was in the tanning bed that day, my phone kept ringing off the hook, one call after the next, after the next, to the point where I thought it must be an emergency from home. So I get out of the tanning bed and I see Rob Black, Rob Black, Rob Black, Rob Black, Rob Black, Rob Black, literally like 20 phone calls. So I call him, you know, thinking there must be something wrong. And he said, uh, you know, you got to get down there right away. Terry Funk's flipping out. What do you mean Terry Funk's flipping out? He said, yeah, he, he really needs to talk to you about something. So I wrap up my tanning session early. I don't go eat. I don't go shower. I go straight down to the hotel expecting there to be a problem. And I go to Terry's room and I had actually had Damien, uh, who I talked about earlier. I said, give me like 20 minutes. 
and then come, you know, come knock on the door. So I don't want to get stuck up there, you know, talking, you know, for hours like you can sometimes do with Terry. He's a tremendous guy to talk to. I went up expecting there to be problems. And I walked in and Terry was just Terry. You know, no problems. And, and, you know, asked what we were planning on doing. Well, because it was our first show in Philadelphia, I didn't want to do a belt change that night because I didn't want to just seem like we were just giving a belt titles, belt changes away. You know, I wanted Terry to work for that. You know, again, the baby face, you know, climbing that mountain one more time. He had told me his idea and his idea entailed the belt change that night. And when I explained to him why that we, I wanted to do a couple East coast shows and one West coast show before we came back and would do the belt drop. Then he asked about a spot with Lizzie. It entailed him reaching up Lizzie's skirt and pulling her panties off and spanking her. Now, in ECW, that would have gotten a huge pop. But remember all I just said about the, the, the separation between the porn and stuff? That would have given our detractors a real easy thing to, to go after. I didn't mind him spanking her, and I didn't mind him doing certain things, just not that. So that night in the building, I'd worked at this point. I'd worked Terry hundreds of times. Never, ever had a problem and never, ever had any taters from Terry, you know, potatoes. Uh, you know, Terry was good and snug, but never dangerous. And that night we went to the ring. And, and for Lizzie's part, I'll tell you this. She was nowhere near as well-trained as, as Francine was. She didn't have the depth of knowledge that Tori Wilson had when she was, you know, in, in the dressing room around, you know, some real legends. But Lizzie really worked hard. She really was open to learning. So, but she wouldn't at this point know why that spot was a good or bad thing and wouldn't know to not allow it to happen. So we go to the ring. Well, earlier, before, before we went to the ring, Terry, had, who had never w- once previously ever asked me to finish twice, kept coming up to me that day at the hotel, all day at the building. He kept, you know, Shane, what's that finish again? Uh, Shane, what, what are we doing for a finish? Over and over and over again. And at first, I got nervous thinking, like, is Terry losing it? Because he's never asked me to finish twice. And then I thought, oh, he's ribbing me. We're not dropping the belt like he wants, so he's ribbing me. And we went to the ring, and uh, he, you know, my plan was to be a rubber ball for him for the first 10 or 15 minutes. And I had literally done a thing to him. The first thing he did was he went to throw my head into the, remember the railing that the, the, the uh, posts that were in the ECW arena on the left and right of the uh, ring posts, one by the entrance and one by the left side, or the stage right side of the ring. He threw my head into that and literally rammed my face into it. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, accidents can happen. Uh, hard weighed me by slamming my face into that post. A few minutes later, we had worked out where we had a, a, a dummy TV camera. It was a real TV camera, but it was a dead camera. It was broken. And it had a piece of orange tape on it so we knew which one it was. And we fight over to that direction, and he takes that camera, and he hits it. Instead of the flat part, he hits me right on the same plot place he's already hard-weighed me with the corner of the camera and, and cuts it even deeper. At this point, I reach over and give him the office. You know, In other words, wrestlers speak for lighting it the fuck up. We then fought out the back door of the ECW arena. The reason I always did that when I was wrestling main events because we'd fight up the street, come back in the front door, and you'd always get this incredible pop on camera you know the whole building just at one point kaboom it was a great great on camera pop we go out back there my hand at the time is in i would broken my thumb so i'm in a spike a cast on my thumb 
and I, I hear this strange noise, tink, tink, tink. What the hell's that? So I turn around, and Terry's got this bottle. This is where the fans would line up looking to get into the building all day. So there's all kind of empty beer bottles and cups and, you know, God knows what's in them. You know, piss and back, you know, spit, to you know, two spit, backwash. And he's got this bottle that I can see, like, cigarette butts in and looks like piss. And he's trying to break it on the outside of the ECW arena, but it won't break. I keep watching him. What the hell's he doing? Because it wouldn't break. Finally, he hauls way back and smashes this into the side of the building and turns around with this, like, shards of glass in his hand. Like, the whole bottle exploded. And he turns around with this glass heading toward me, and I'm thinking... I'm already cut open, meaning my skin's broken open. And you just picked that bottle of God knows the person that was using that bottle had hepatitis or AIDS or God knows whatever else. And he grabs me by the head and then he takes that and he jams that glass right into my, where I'm already busted open. At that point, I got pissed. And I took my cast and I smacked out his hand and I said, cut the fucking shit, Terry. And I walked up the street to come back in the front door. I sold up the street and so I wait now, now this happens in front of no one basically or just a few fans out on the street or what maybe one or two or three mostly it was john finnegan our referee and uh atlas security and maybe one or two other fans i think the fans were waiting for us to come back in the front door like i always did so there and was no reason to do this zero other than the tv camera was there you know the the, the tv ca- the live tv camera was out there filming it of course so I, I sell up the street and turn around expecting Terry to be there to hit me and drag me back into the arena. Meanwhile, Terry's all the way back where I've left him at the back of the ECW arena, and John Finnegan comes running up and says, Shane, you better get back here right away. Terry's hurt. He's hurt bad. Well, I hadn't done anything to him. <laughs> I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thrown, I, I don't believe, a punch at that point. So I thought, how did he get hurt? So, you know, my head, I'm thinking maybe he twisted his knee, twisted his ankle, something like that. And I come running back there. And he's holding his arm. It's dark out. Now, I can't see. He's holding his arm. He's going, you stupid motherfucker. You goddamn, you fucking Shane Douglas, you dumb fuck. And it, I mean, you know, that's how Terry sold. So I, I didn't take it personally. But I started pounding on the back door. Somebody inside then opens it. And I throw Terry in. And he falls down, laying up the stairs. There's like two or three steps there. So I'm straddling him, climbing up over top of him. And I come up and I can see... From his wrist to his elbow, he's cut, like a surgical cut, from wrist to elbow, and it's laid open like a vagina. But it wasn't <laughs> bleeding. That's the weird part. It wasn't bleeding. It was, I could just see his like muscle, his veins pulsating and the muscle vibrating. Well, you know, because I'd been accepted to medical school, I knew this is a serious injury. I, I didn't know how he got it, but I knew it was a serious injury. I was going to stop the match, and Terry insisted no. So we... I take him back to the ring, and he's holding his arm the whole time. I throw him over the railing to get back in the ring so we can get to a finish and get this thing done to get him taken care of. And as I'm climbing over the railing, I'm looking back at the crowd, and I feel something hit me up near my balls, hard. So I look around thinking a fan tried to kick me in the balls, and I didn't see anybody. There's nobody there. And I saw Terry walking away. I look back at this. uh, I think I can't remember if it was uh, Big Ron from Atlas. One of the Atlas guys, I looked at him like, like, confused like what just happened so i come over the railing terry goes post left i go post right when i roll in he's rolling in and he grabs me and he starts throwing those terry funk punches and they're pretty damn snug uh, bordering on being potatoes and so now in my head i'm thinking to myself is he trying to throw potatoes or is he trying to throw a working punch and can't gauge it because how badly he's cut 
So I took a bump to feed him for kicks. And my thinking was, if he tater kicks me, I'm going to take him down and break his leg. I reach up and three or four kicks in a row, light as a feather. Like, okay, great. He's good. And I'm laying there selling. And so I you're legit You're legit pissed off right now. You are pissed off at Terry Funk. Even though Terry Funk is somebody that that meant a lot to you, at this point, he is he has pissed you off. Well, more, I'm more concerned for Terry. I, yeah, I was pissed, but I was more concerned that he was hurt. And so I'm selling those kits, and he just hits me with, and I hear the crowd pop, and I turn around, and I see him dragging Lizzie into the ring, and then he reaches up her skirt, and he pulls her panties off, and then starts to spank her, and then comes over and puts the panties on my head, or tries to. That's when I got hot, because I had specifically told him we were not doing that spot. And, there, and I explained the reasons earlier. We went to the finish and uh, got out of there. I get back to the dressing room. I'm pissed, but I'm still worried about Terry. So I walked into the dressing room, and I, I yelled out, hey, Terry's hurt, Terry's hurt bad. Somebody throw me a, I need a towel. Vic Grimes was the first person, reached in his bag and pulled out a clean towel and threw it to me. I grab it out of the air, and I turn around right as Terry's walking in, and I go to hand him the towel, and I ask him if he's okay, and he hauls off, and he smacks me right upside my ear. Hard. Oof. And I look back at him for a second like, that's got to be a fucking joke, right? And he smacked me a second time. And I look back, when I say smack me, he's bringing his hand back from behind his ass. But he wasn't saying anything. So after the second hit, I look back at him and I said, Terry, you try to hit me again, I'm going to knock your fucking ass out. And he thought about it for a second and he pulled his hand back and went to swing it. And when he did, I reached up to block it. It was my right hand that was in the cast. And I was aiming right for his temple when I was going to knock his ass out. And as I, as I threw the punch, Lizzie jumped in between us. And so I threw wide not to hit her. And by that time, now people are pulling us apart. Security's getting between us, and everybody's pulling us apart. I have no idea what the hell's going on other than I just had the shit smacked out of my mouth twice, you know, upside the head. So at this point, anybody that knows me knows my temper. I had gone ape shit. I was going to kill this guy. They had built... They, taken Terry to the far side of the dressing room, Atlas Security had built a wall. They were like shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, protecting him. And I was walking like a caged animal down trying to find an opening to get in there. I, I had gone crazy. I mean, I'd lost my mind. I finally saw an opening and I, and I pushed through and I came over and I smacked Terry in the face. I said, get to your feet. And he wouldn't get up. So I reached and grabbed him by the hair and I slammed his head into the wall. I said, I said, get to your fucking feet. And the doctor looked at me and he said, if you touch my patient again, I'll have you arrested. Well, that made me even matter. You know, that I, now I can't fight this guy. And, you know, I, I, was, going, I was literally like a caged animal. I, I was losing my mind. I was so mad. They ended up surrounding Terry like a phalanx of people. Atlas Security and wrestlers completely surrounded him and walked him out of the building to the ambulance. I remember, like, just stalking them, like, looking for an opening to get in there. I, I literally lost my mind. I was so mad. A, in, in large part because I was hurt, I didn't know why Terry Funk would be doing this. And then later uh, that week when I started hearing Terry's public explanation, was telling everybody that I stabbed him. He had started telling guys in the dressing room that night, and then that week went public, like, in the sheets that I had stabbed him while we were outside there. Well, you know, that's a pretty, you know, now, let's take a step back for a second. You know, I'm still relatively new in this company, and most of these kids don't really know me. And now you hear that Shane Douglas has stabbed Terry Funk pretty badly because he's cut pretty badly. And they all think I'm friends with Terry Funk. You know, they, they had grown up hearing these stories about what, 
you know, this connection between me and Terry. And now you're hearing that I stabbed him. You know, that was a, but I, overall analysis, at that point, we learned that Terry was also working with 3PW. And the Pennsylvania Commission had a a rule that if you used a blade, that you would lose your, you know, you'd get fined and could possibly lose your uh, bond. And that's what I really think was at work. That's what I really think was, was, was going on. They were trying to cut us off at the balls because we had sold DCW Reno out two or three times in a row and we're drawing pretty good houses and, 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 and getting a lot of good uh, feedback. So what the hell was wrong with Terry? Why was he acting like that? I, you, you'll, you'll swear I'm lying to when I tell you this. We have never spoken about that. When I didn't talk to Terry from that point until the 2005 Hardcore Homecoming in ECW Reno. And like I've often told, you know, mentioned about that show, I knew if we were going to have a reunion, you cannot have a reunion without Terry Funk. I mean, he was an integral part of the success of ECW. And so invited him and he got there and it was like nothing ever happened. You know, it was like back, back to 1997 or 8. So you never and mentioned it to him? You never said, hey, what was the deal when you tried to kill me out here in XPW? No. Uh, I, like I said, I had my... I had pretty good evidence as to what it was that happened, and I didn't want to put him on the spot and create, you know, bad undercurrent for the circus. We were going to be redoing the three-way dance that night. I just, you know, I it, it didn't make sense to me. It never. And he, the best part of this whole thing is Rob Black always believed that it was an angle that Terry and I were working him on. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it, I can assure you, it was not that. I wish it was that. What I think in hindsight was either, like I said, that Terry knowing that he was working with Todd Gordon, working with 3PW, that it was an attempt to try to get our license and bond taken away. Or, and this part, I'll explain what it is, and I'll explain why I don't believe that. Uh, It was Terry working an inside angle. And the reason I don't believe that is there was never a time that I ever worked with Terry Funk or anybody in ECW that I wasn't able to uphold my end of an angle. And so you don't need to work me you know, that's a, that's a trick old-timers use when they want to get, like, uh, the realest reaction they can get. But I was pretty well known in the business for being able to deliver on my end of an angle. So that's why I don't believe that's what was being done there. I think it was – the only thing that makes sense to me is the 3PW connection. All right, since we're talking about real-life heat, I've got to bring up this next person. And I look uh, in my research for this episode, I looked for a response from the franchise. And I could not find a response. But I did find – Plenty of shoot interviews from a guy by the name of Luke Hawks. And Luke Luke <laughs> yeah. Hawks had some really bad stuff to say about you. And my question is, you know, he is one of the only. You know, when you, when you go around looking for people talking shit about Shane Douglas, it, there's not a whole lot out there. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to find promos of people talking about Shane Douglas in in a storyline or or on TV or as a part of an angle, but it's to hear someone yeah. say, "Hey, Shane Douglas is a piece of shit, and I hate him." And I've never heard that until I heard Luke Hawks talk about you. Tell me, what is this guy's issue with you, and why have you never responded until right now? You know, I, I was so wrapped into what I was doing, whether it was booking at XPW. Now, at this time, under he he was a character named Alder Boy Luke. Very young kid. I uh, did a lot more of the aerial stuff, but was he, he looked nothing like he looks now. He looks fantastic now. And you know, for me, most of those shows, the those earlier matches were pretty well booked out by like Kevin Kleinrock and Rob Black. 
you know, I, I focused mostly on the upper, upper part of the card, but I had spoken to Luke within the last year or two about this. And I, you know, I asked him that very question, you know, like, what was the issue? And from his perspective, as a young kid in the dressing room, he felt like I was ignoring him. Easy enough to see how that could, how a kid could misconstrue that. And, you know, and, and to be honest with you, at the time that I was in XPW, that was the, the, the front end of my OxyContin abuse. And I'm not using that as an excuse. I mean, but it was, I was probably not the most clear-minded guy. Well, yeah, he uh, definitely called you a drug addict. <laughs> I'm sure, and a whole lot of other things. You know, we had since talked about it, and then you know, he told me flat out. You know, because I asked him, I said, you know, what was the issue? And he said, you know, I was a young kid, and it didn't seem like I was getting my due. And, and that's an easy enough thing to do in a dressing room. You know, I mean, I, 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 there were many times in my career I felt like that. You know, I'd heard my peers say much the same thing. You know, I remember Brian Pillman talking about that. I remember Z-Man talking about that. I remember Steve Austin talking about that. Uh, you know, so it's easy enough to see how that can happen. And, and I was probably guilty of it, you know, A, because I didn't book the, those earlier matches on the card and the OxyContin thing. Easy enough to see how, you know, how someone, and the one thing I give him credit for is that, he he said it publicly and not in the dressing rooms or whatever else. So he was clearly sending me a message. And the reason I didn't respond to it forever was because the only recollections I had of Luke at that point were as altar boy Luke. And he always seemed like he put on pretty good matches, you know. So it was not something that, like, it, there wasn't a problem that stuck out in my head as to what the issue would be. And so I thought it was a lot of, you know, just trying to take a, a – you know, a, a page from my book and slam somebody else like I did with Flair. Again, the difference that I would say, like, in that was that I had legitimate reason to, to do that because of, of the things that Flair had said he would do and then didn't do, comments that he had made. But I, I really didn't know. You know, it's uh, water under the bridge. We always spoken about it and cleared the air. And I, you know, I apologized to him. I said, look, you know, if I'm not making these excuses, I'm just telling you that's where I was in my life. And at that point, my marriage was starting to founder, you know, and so like there was a lot of other things going on in my head than worrying about the nuts and bolts of every tiny detail on the card, especially the things that I wasn't booking or, or, or overseeing. You know, like when I would get there when I was booking, the, my primary focus was on the main event matches, not just mine, you know, the upper card. You know, I would get there and Kevin Kleinrock would have pretty much, at least it was my understanding that Kevin Kleinrock had pretty much booked out the earlier stuff. So it was just one of those confluences of, you know, him not fully understanding, me not recognizing the parallels, you know, between the way he was perceiving things and how easy it was for him to perceive that as me doing the same thing that Flair had done to me. You know, we, like I said, there's water under the bridge and there, I think there's more respect between us now than there ever had been. One of the things he said that really pissed me off was that he said that there's no market for extreme nostalgia anymore. And there definitely is a market for extreme nostalgia. Uh, you could you could not say that to the to thousands of people that listen to this show. <laughs> well, look, I, I mean, nostalgia is nostalgia, right? I mean, when Kiss put the makeup back, back on in 96 after, you know, 15, 18 years of being out of the makeup, it sold set records that year you know they they're, they're on their their protracted final tour supposed right now which you know like i always talk about nostalgia is a powerful opiate it's one of the reasons why like on, a, on the largest stage when you see at wwe when they call back a steve austin to help sell out a monday night raw for madison square garden or you know 
call back to Shawn Michaels and Undertakers and Mick Foley's and Steve Austin's and, and, and to, you know, have a special show to really drum up ratings. That's why, you know, Steve Austin hasn't wrestled in, what, 20 years, 15 years, whatever it's been. It's been a while. It's been a while. And, yeah, you know, Undertaker, you know, has clearly had his run and, you know, happily stays where he's in his life. You know, the rest of those guys all retired. Mick can barely get up stage, you know, stairs, ring stairs anymore. But they still get back and back. Why? On paper, using that analogy that there's no market for that, there'd be no reason to call those guys back. But I think what was more probably at work there was him con- you know, con- continuing his diatribe to me and wrapping that together uh, as equal things with ECW or Extreme Nostalgia. Well, on March 8th, 2003, XPW did a show in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which had 1,500 in attendance, mainly due to Pittsburgh being your hometown. This would be XPW's very last show. There were scheduled shows in April 2003 on the East Coast. Supposedly, tickets weren't selling very, very well. And uh, the XPW announced that they were canceling the event due to a storm that was not as big as XPW boasted it to be on their website. But you end up keeping the title here, and you are the last XPW champion. I guess, I mean, you're actually probably still the XPW champion right now. (laughs) I I don't know about that, but uh, I think, and I may be wrong on this, but I think there may be some confusion online about that uh, because either that or or, uh, history repeated itself because... I think the confusion is being born out of Extreme Rising when Cody and I, who were also working there together, left. And then there were some ticket sales after that. And less lightning, the exact same lightning bolt struck in the same place in the same way. I don't believe, when I read that online today doing research, I thought that there was a confusion between those two. But the show in Pittsburgh, I believe, was my last show for XPW. And it seems to me, as I recollect that I recall hearing things after that. And I don't know if I'm confusing or conf- but there were, there were shows that were run over the years. Correct. That were with the XPW banner. I think, I think there might've been something, but nothing officially XPW. Well, they, they, you know, Kevin Kleinrock, who, who, you know, I, we remain friends to this day. He was, very instrumental in, in the dressing room. He he was in California and so was working with Rob on a day-to-day basis. And like I said, you know, booking those earlier parts of the shows and things, uh, at least when I was booking. And then after I left, I know that he was working. Uh, he did a lot to like get the XPW titles to uh, Big Vision, which is a company he was working with at that time, to distribute those titles. And now, now Kevin does a lot with like Lucha Libre out, out there in California and, and, and still put shows together. He was also instrumental in doing the uh, Wrestling Society X that had uh, made inroads that uh, was going, I think, actually aired on MTV for so many weeks. That's where Seth Rollins came from. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, it's funny because, it, again, like how the, the pendulum keeps, keeps, you know, hitting back and forth. But you see things keep coming back around. For anybody that's familiar with Wrestling Society X, that's watched uh, Lucha Underground, yeah, it, it looks almost as though it's the same show. Uh, it, it, they're clearly things that have been pulled out of Wrestling Society X, the warehouse feel, that sort of thing. There are a lot of parallels to the way it's presented. 
You know, XPW was definitely positioned to fill the ECW void when it closed, and somehow it still got screwed up. I know at the end here, Rob Zakari and Lizzie Borden go to prison for a year and a day for basically rape porn. Yeah, it, that, well, you know, I remember that happening. That happened here in Pittsburgh. You know, I'll let the constitutional scholar come out for a second. The Supreme Court has steadfastly held that pornography is legal. It's a, it's a form of, uh, of free speech. Evidently, and who knew? I lived here all my life and didn't know. Different areas of the country have different uh, statutes on the books as to what is allowable and what's not allowable. Uh, somebody, apparently the, the way I heard the story at the time was there was a woman in uh, California, Pennsylvania, where University of California is uh, based, and she had found some extreme associates' uh, material in her, in her boyfriend or her husband's possession and went to the authorities. And the authorities then set up and ordered online some things from Extreme Associates. And as soon as it was received, the charges were filed against Rob and Lizzie. And now I got up in full disclosure up front. I'm, I'm one of those guys that, you know, pornography, uh, I, it does nothing for me because I, I can't imagine going out and spending 20, 30 bucks, whatever it is, for a magazine looking at a girl you're never going to be with. But, you know, I, I firmly believe, as everybody knows, I'm a, I'm, I'm a First Amendment stalwart. And all, because I don't, you know, buy that stuff doesn't mean that I think you shouldn't or anybody else shouldn't have the right to do it or the people making it and putting it out, as long as the women that are doing it are paid properly and they don't have an objection to it. You know, to me, it's all, it all comes out in the wash at the end that way. Now, if somebody's being victimized, that's a different story. You know, but I remember when this hit, there was a woman, and I think it's trying to remember her name, uh, Beth, 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 Beth. Her first name was Beth. She was the district, the, the, the U.S. Uh, uh, district attorney in Pittsburgh. And she had, she would later run for governor and get, get her ass handed to her. She also tried to run for Congress, I think, and the same thing happened. She had quite a bunch of put her, what we would call foot and mouth disease and just really lambasted herself, uh, but she was trying to make her name by going after high-profile cases. Rob and Lizzie were one. Another was uh, and Chong, Tommy Chong. Uh, he was selling like head, head materials online, and she went after him and basically told him, like, if, if, I'm going to put your... I think his son... I'm, I'm getting the story. I think his son was selling this stuff. And she went after him and said, you either take the fall or your son will. And Tommy Chong did what any good father would do, took the hit and spent some time in jail. You know, she was one of these people that was going for the 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 uh, the PR of, of the uh, indictments and, and, you know, the, the cases themselves, as opposed to really, you know, going after lawlessness and, and that sort of thing. And Lizzie and Rob just happened to get sucked into that. And my understanding is I best remember it is that he put up a pretty good fight for a while. His dad is, is pretty well loaded. And he put up a good fight for a while and kept him at bay. And I think the case got dropped at one point and then got picked back up again. And basically it reached the point where I think Rob, I'd heard at the time, and again, this is just what I'm hearing, telling you on hearsay, was that Rob had spent over a million dollars in defending him and Lizzie on the case, and they ran out of money. And so they basically accepted a plea deal to go to jail for a year and a day. Do you have any kind of contact with Rob or Lizzie now? I haven't spoken to Rob uh, since then, but Lizzie, I had spoken to Lizzie a couple times online for Twitter. Um, I see her, you know, occasionally pop up on my Twitter feed. She looks fantastic and 
seems and sounds like she's doing very well. So, uh, you know, I was always happy to hear that. So this has been a pretty interesting story. I, I didn't think that we would ever have an episode that would end with rape porn, but we did. <laughs> you know, it's, I guess that is, uh, I am a stalwart supporter of First Amendment rights and always will be. So, well, that was a great a great episode on XPW. We have to talk about some other things because we've got a really huge announcement coming. But first, I'm going to give that uh, little little piece of information about New Jack that we're going to be sharing with our listeners. Um, this coming Tuesday, we are actually taking a break from Franchised with Shane Douglas. We will be back the following Tuesday with an episode about Bam Bam Bigelow. But this coming nice. Tuesday, we are going to do an episode where we're going to release the New Jack tapes, where uh, where the fans can check out the New Jack tapes, and it's the most thor- thorough New Jack interview, I think, in my opinion, that has ever been done. And that's not just because well, I did that, it. Well, that, that that will be something to hear. <laughs> I'm sure if there's if there's uh, look anybody that knows Jack knows that Jack holds nothing back. He says it like he sees it and you know doesn't mince words that might be an episode that i'm guessing just taking a stab in the dark here that you might not want the kitties around listening to definitely as, not uh, definitely not <laughs> well uh, we're gonna have new jack the full story and that and that's more than just the uh, vic grimes match we're going to talk about everything he did in, in ecw and all that, and and we're actually uh, we're actually going to take a break from the franchise. But when we come back, we're going to come back really big, and we're going to come back with Bam Bam Bigelow. So I'm giving you two weeks here to get your Bam Bam Bigelow stories together. Okay. Well, I I, I got those. We can we, we can do that episode right now and put it in tape. Well, we might do that. That might be a good idea. They're not going to have three weeks off. But no, uh, I can't wait to hear the Bam Bam Bigelow episode. And I can't wait for you to hear what I did with New Jack. This has been about a year ago that I I did this interview. And we're going to share it with the Franchisee Network next week right here on Franchised with Shane Douglas. Now it's time for our big announcement, Shane. And I'm really excited about this. This is going to be maybe one of the if biggest this, things ever. If this is what I'm thinking it is, I, I think you're right. I think this is pretty damn big. Well, I mean, it's got to be pretty big since you agreed to watch a full AEW show when this happens. Yeah, well, look, look after last week, I, you know, I'm not, not too hard to twist my arm. Uh, I, I, I've always said I, I love professional wrestling. And when I watch something that makes sense and I see, you know, the, the people in the ring working hard and the production is right and, you know, everything falls into place, I, I don't need perfection. I, you know, I certainly never had perfection in my career, but, you know, I want something that brings me to the edge of my seat. And AEW did that last week. So if it's a, if it's a, forcing me to sit and watch that, then I'm game. Well, it's funny you said edge of your seat because you're going to be in a seat. You're going to be in a seat and you're going to be watching AEW live with one of our listeners. Now, now this is not put together completely yet. I don't have a date. I don't know exactly when, but I do know this. In the future, someone that listens to Franchise with Shane Douglas is going to get an opportunity to fly on franchised airwaves, that's right, a private jet with the franchise, you're going to get to eat dinner with the franchise, and you're going to get to go to an AEW event with the franchise and watch it live. It's going to be maybe the biggest 
podcast contest of all time. And get my instant feedback as we watch that show live. That's right. And you can ask him anything you want at dinner. You can ask him anything you want on the flight to wherever we're going, because I'm not sure yet. I'm trying to see if maybe I can make this thing happen in Florida so I can go too. But I do know you uh. will you will be on the plane with Shane Douglas. You will be on the plane with our sponsor, Mr. Stephen P. New, the the pro wrestling lawyer. You know, he's uh, he's Jim Cornette's lawyer too as well. Did you know that? Yes, absolutely, yes. And he will be there, Shane will be there, and hopefully, maybe I'll get to come too, and we will have a blast together, whether I'm there or not, and you will get to go see <laughs> AEW with Shane Douglas. And I think I don't think any other podcast has done anything like that. Have you ever heard of a podcast I, I, flying people out to an event? I, I never have. I've, I've never heard of anything like that, and that, that's a pretty big deal. You know, that, like you said, you know, the, the private jet, the, you know, the, uh, it's all-encompassing. You know, I, I think that's the kind of thing that you... You expect to see more with a major company like WWE, but you're getting it right here with the franchise uh, podcast. So I think it's a it's a little bit of a stake our claim uh, feel. That's true, and we got to give a big shout out to another friend of the show, Wrestling Inc. Wrestling Inc. has been covering a lot of our stories. They've been talking to us. You were on Nick Hossman's show just the other day, and it's it's great to have a company like Wrestling Inc. working with us. The franchise with the franchise Shane Douglas on franchised with Shane Douglas, so so it's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, look, absolutely. Any, anytime, you know, as you know, because we had talked about this in doing the podcast. I, you know, I don't want to do a podcast just to do a podcast. I, I want to have something to say. You know, luckily, like I said earlier, I have, I've had, been blessed with a long career, and I've rubbed elbows with you know, pretty much every major name and learned with and worked with most every big name in wrestling history of, the, of, my, of my era, uh, you know, so to finally have a place to sit down and, uh, you know, and, and talk about that. And then we get the coverage, like you said, from Wrestling Inc. And, you know, have the, uh, I like the franchise airways uh, uh, sound. I, maybe I'll start an airline here and, and, you know, start my own little regional jet path or something. But Maybe we should. I, it's good that, you know, we've seen podcasts and mass take off, right? I mean, you know, from the crime stuff, there's one about Diana that's got me, you know, hooked, you know, like listening to what's going on. Clearly, podcasts are filling a void that the fake news complex seems to be missing. And so, you know, in our own way, to the fans of professional wrestling, uh, we get to bring these stories to them and, and their unvarnished, unpolished views and straight from the horse's mouth. So what could be better than that? Very, very true, sir. And I've got to remind you guys that are listening now, you are a part of the beginning. Yes, we're just getting started. There are so many episodes coming up in the next year. You are going to be blown away by the information that you get. But the important thing about the people that are listening to this show right now is you are on the ground floor. You're the beginning of the Franchisee Network, and we've got so much coming up for you that you would not believe. So tell your friends. Make sure that you invite people to like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Franchise with Shane Douglas. Follow us on Twitter at Franchised SD. Uh, you can you can get us all over the place. We're even on Instagram. Find us on Instagram and follow us there. You want to be a part of all this, and you also want to make sure that you're a part of the official Franchised Facebook group 
It is out there. You can join it. And those are the people, the people that are in that franchised group, they get info days before the rest of you. So if you're not in that group, you're missing information or getting it late. So make sure that you are in that group ASAP. That's franchised with Shane Douglas official Facebook group. You can find it by just searching franchise with Shane Douglas and our page will come up and then the group will come up and join that group because that group is truly the ground floor of the franchisee movement. That's right. I mean, you know, if you want to hear the franchises un- unbarnished, unpolished, direct, straight views the way I see it, and this is the only place to come and get it done, man. I mean, you know, and my guess would be that with that big uh, contest coming up, you might also want to join in some of those pages. Make sure you get your ass on that plane. <laughs> that is 100% correct. All right, Shane. Well, I've had a blast with you today, and we have talked it out for an hour and 40-some minutes. So uh, go ahead. Take us home. Hey, you always wanted to hear about XPW? Straight from the franchise's mouth, straight from the booker's mouth, and XPW and all the history that goes there. Well, guess what? You just got it, and you've been <laughs> franchised. <laughs> XPW, the franchise did you a huge debt of gratitude, a huge, huge favor, because your company is now on track. Just like I left ECW, and just like I'm rebuilding WCW. You too have an opportunity now for a future because of me, the franchise. I didn't screw you, I built you. Remember that down the line. Not gonna bend the breakable I won't fail a 